Welcome to the Crazy Love Podcast. Many Christians put a high priority on the church believing and teaching the Word of God, but can we really claim to be standing for the truth without confronting sin? In this message from his time at Cornerstone Church, Francis calls believers to both hold up and live out the truth of God's Word and lovingly stand for the purity of the body of Christ. You know, we're, we're, uh, we're going to take a little break from the book of Luke, okay? Just for a couple of weeks. And the reason is, is because we're going to make some changes in the church. Um, there are going to be some, you, you know, and if you've been a cornerstone for any period of time, you know that, well, what else is new? You know, what are you, what are you changing now? But there's some things that, that we're, that we're going to change. And, um, but I'm not going to tell you about them this week. So you got to come back. Um, what I want to do before, you know, we, we talk about vision and direction and stuff that I, that, that the elders have prayed through and thought through. Um, I want to make sure you understand the things that can't change at Cornerstone and make sure that we're all on the same page as far as what are the distinctives of this place? What is this church all about? Because we've got a lot of new people, you know, and there's, there's new people every week. And the idea is, are we really on the same page here of what Cornerstone stands for? And that's what I want to talk about this week. Um, and some of these things may sound obvious, but in the world that we live in, I just don't think anything's obvious in the church anymore. Um, you guys know that this is a Bible-believing church? Okay, okay, good. We're on the same page there. Okay. And you understand that this is a Bible-teaching church, that every week that I'm going to be teaching from this book, it's not just, hey, I think God wants to do this, this, this. It's, no, this is what His Word says. We teach this book, and that, that's something that, that cannot change. We, we, we stand for the Word of God here, and that's not an obvious thing. That's not obvious as you walk into a place that says church, that they're going to believe, you know, that, that, that these are God's words and then they're going to stand by, by God's saying what is right and wrong. We believe that we, we find out what's right and wrong in the absolutes from God's word. That this was written by, by the apostles, the prophets, men who didn't just say, hey, I think God said this. No, but, but men who were able to say, to authenticate what they were writing through their miracles, through their actions, through these healings. I mean, amazing men of God. People didn't just follow them because they said they were men of God. They actually did things. They proved themselves, authenticated themselves through signs and wonders. And, and so we, we look at this book and then we look at the prophecy and we see how it's proven itself through the centuries. And we go, you know what, this is, this is not a normal book. Then we start applying this book to our lives and it changes our lives. And we go, this is not a normal book. This is a book that comes from God. This is the truth. This is the truth of his word. And, and in fact, I really believe that uh, what a church is supposed to be, I mean, this is, this is what churches are for, are to stand for the truth. In fact, if you have the, your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, because there, there, there's a verse here that, uh, a couple verses here that I, I really believe should explain the vision of every church, because it's in the Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Now, let me give you background of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is written by Paul, the, the apostle, one of the apostles of Jesus, you know, uh, you know, died, rose again, then ascended back into heaven, you know, after appearing to everyone. Then, uh, then the church started, and there were his apostles that went around all around the world proclaiming the good news, telling everyone the good news. And so then in every city, there started to be these gatherings of believers, kind of like what we have. The people that believed got together and they gathered together. 
Well, Timothy was, was like the pastor of this little gathering in Ephesus, in this church. And Timothy was one of Paul's, you know, disciples, one of the, one, one of the guys that, that Paul taught. And so here in 1 Timothy, he's writing a letter to Timothy and says, you know, that church you've got, that church that I've asked you to stay at and, and to guard and to care for, let me give you some instructions about the church. And that's what these letters are. So in 1 Timothy 3, verse 14, he says to Timothy, he says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. I love that description. Paul says, hey, Timothy, I'm going to come. I'm going to help you out and help you figure out this church thing. But just in case I'm delayed, let me give you some instructions as to how the church is supposed to function, how it's supposed to operate. But he calls it the church of the living God. And this is the description I want to get. He says, the pillar and foundation of the truth. What is the church supposed to be? It's supposed to be the foundation and the pillar of truth. You know what a foundation is, right? You know, hopefully you got one at your house. It's, it's you know, it's the thing on the bottom. But, but in addition to the foundation, he uses this word, the pillar. And, and you've ever seen the ruins and you see those old Greek or Roman, you know, those, those pillars, you know, that, that still stand. I mean, you know what a pillar does? It holds up whatever's up there, right? I mean, you remember the story of Samson and what happened when Samson knocked over those pillars? The whole place fell down. Okay, so everything is dependent on that foundation and the pillars to hold it up. And, and what the Bible says is what the church is, what we are, we are the ones, we are the foundation and the pillar of truth. That it's totally up to us to hold up the truth of God. You see, it's our responsibility. If we don't say, hey, this is God's word and this is absolute truth, who's going to do it? Think about it. Is anyone outside of the church going to hold up the truth of God's word? Of course not. It, it all rises and falls on the pillar, the foundation, which is us, the church. That's an incredible responsibility. If we don't hold this thing up, who will? And God says, I'm depending on the church to do that. You know, when I read that, I love that description but when I think of that description, I think of my favorite statue. I don't know if you call it a statue, whatever, but it's, it's the, the Iwo Jima Memorial. You guys know what I'm talking about. They're on the screen. Don't you love that? I love that picture. I, I love that, that, that whole statue. I've never seen it live, but every time I see it, I, I just think, man, that's so, so powerful. It just says so much. No one needs to describe it. You just get fired up watching that. You know, you just go, man, it's just these guys saying, man, we're holding up this flag. We believe in this country. You're not taking down this flag, not on our watch. There's no way you're not taking this thing down. And we're going to work together. We're going to hold this thing up because we believe in this country and we'll die for it. If you want, if you want this flag to come down, you're going to have to come through us. And I love that. You know, it's just, it's just working together, knowing we love this country. You see, and when I think about this passage, I think about this. I, I think about how, you know, as a church, God is saying, no, no, don't you understand? You're the only ones that are going to be the pillar and the foundation of the truth. You've got to hold it up. 
And I really believe this is my responsibility in my lifetime that I'm one of those that just says, no, you know what? Go ahead, kill me. I mean, seriously, this is something I'm willing to die for. I I will die holding up the truth. I'm not going to back down no matter how unpopular it gets because this is sacred. These are God's words. This represents the very words of God, our creator. And my picture of the church is for all of us to stand together, those who are with me, to say, you know what? I'll hold that up with you. You know, I'm going to stand with you. And we together throughout our lifetimes will be the ones, and people have been doing that for 2,000 years now. And I'm not going to drop it. Not on my watch. I'll die before that. As long as I'm a cornerstone, this is what we're going to stand for. And, And what we desire is that the rest of the body comes on with this and says, you know what, as long as I'm here at this church, that's what we're going to stand for. And, and that this church lives on believing that, you know what, this is, this is it. You know, this is God's truth. You can take that down. But the, the whole idea of, of standing for God's truth is not just preaching it, though. Okay, it doesn't mean that I just stand up here and I preach the word. It means I live it out. That's what it means to stand for it. Otherwise, I'm just a hypocrite. Otherwise, I'm just like the Pharisees, you know, who tell everyone else what to do, but they don't do it themselves. I mean, do you understand that by coming to church here, by becoming a member, you're saying, you know what? I want to be under the authority of this word. I want the words to change me. I come each week because I want to be changed and become more like that. See, that was the purpose of the church, not just to proclaim the word, but to proclaim it through living it out and purifying itself. We read in uh, in 2 Corinthians, if you have your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Again, Paul's writing this letter to this church in Corinth now. But he explains, look, this is why I write. Okay? It's for the purification of the church. The church would stand on what God says is right and wrong. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1. It says this, Since we have these promises, dear friends, Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. He says to the church, he goes, look, since we've got all these great promises of God, because because of that, because of everything that God's done for us, that yeah, his son shed his blood, we just celebrated that through communion. Because he's done that and we've got the promise of eternal life, he goes, then let's, let's purify ourselves. Let's cleanse ourselves. Of, and get rid of anything that will contaminate our body, anything that will contaminate our spirit. Let's purify this place. And he says, you know, con- you know uh, out of reverence, perfecting holiness. Let's make ourselves perfectly holy out of reverence for God, out of a fear of God, out of the fact that we believe, you know what, there's a being up there right now who is so incredible, who is holy, who's set apart, that being our creator, and because he's there and because we revere him, you guys, let's live the way he asks us to. Let's seek perfection in our holiness. Let's strive for that and not say, ah, good enough, but perfect holiness. Perfect holiness out of reverence for God. And he goes on and explains that a little bit more. Look at verse 8, because Paul talks about the letter that he wrote the Corinthians. Okay, this is out of 2 Corinthians. Do you have any guess what his first letter was called? Okay, verse 8. He says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, that's the first letter he wrote, he goes, I do not regret it. 
Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a while. Yet now I'm happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Paul says, you know, that first letter, and if you read the first letter, 1 Corinthians, you see he hammered them. I mean, you, you go through 1 Corinthians and, and for, every, you know, for right reasons. I mean, that was a pretty nasty church. I mean, when you read it, it's like, you know, chapter 1, they're all divided. Hey, I follow Paul. I follow Paulus. And Paul's going, shut up. What, what are you what are you guys following different people for? Did Christ suddenly become divided? And so this guy's following Peter, Paul, Apollos. He goes, it's all about Jesus. You know, then he goes on and he starts talking about, you know, their, their knowledge and them thinking they were so wise. He says, you guys are like little babies. I got I to gotta bottle feed you. He says, you know, you're so immoral and talks about the immorality that takes place in the church. He talks about how divorce had run rampant in that church and, and it was no longer sacred. They were suing one another. They were, uh, they were eating food, sacrificed to idols. They were, uh, you know, taking advantage of, of, of others that were weak. They'd come together for communion, you know, like, like we did. But what they would do is that they would come early and start drinking the wine and get drunk, you know, at, at communion, you know, that. And they thought, oh, we're doing a good thing, though, because we're remembering the blood, you know, and, and, uh, and, and they thought that was okay. I mean, you go on, you know, and, and then they start, you know, going crazy with these gifts and, you know, and, and, and just their, their, their service was just totally out of order you know, not making any sense to anyone. And, and not only that, they didn't even believe in the resurrection anymore in chapter 15. They, they were saying, yeah, Jesus never rose from the grave. People were saying, oh, you know, look, hey, the Spirit just told me Jesus is cursed. I mean, these are the things that are happening in service. So Paul just nails them and goes, what in the world are you doing? And so here in 2 Corinthians, he goes, that letter bugged you, huh? He goes, you guys wept over it when you saw that an apostle of God, and this is the way God views your church, it made you sad. And he goes, but you know what? I don't regret it. I don't regret making you sad. I don't regret making you cry. Because what happened after you wept for a while, you turned. You changed your life. After that sorrowful moment, you turned and you started doing what was right. And he says, you know what? That's godly sorrow because godly sorrow leads to repentance. But what he does in this, though, is very, very important. He makes a distinction and he says there are two types of crying. There are two different types of sadness and they're polar opposites. You've got godly sorrow and you have worldly sorrow. Two totally different things. Both of them, you sound the same. You both go, eh. But they sound alike, but they're two totally different things. In fact, he says, godly sorrow leads you to repentance, which leads to salvation. He says, worldly sorrow leads you to death. So one leads to salvation, one leads to death. I mean, can you see they're polar opposites? They're completely different. You know, one is salvation, one is death, but they both sound the same. The tears look alike. So what is the distinguishing factor? It's the only way you can tell the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow is repentance. Repentance, which means to turn, to change. It means you're heading this one direction, you're confronted, you weep, but you don't keep going the same direction. Repentance means you weep, 
and you, it's godly sorrow. God has brought those tears and you turn and you start walking the other direction. And he says, that's what you guys did. He said that to the Corinthian church, which is exciting. He says, you know what? I'm so glad I wrote that letter. I'm so glad I made you cry because your tears were real tears. They were good tears. They were godly tears. They led you to repentance. See, I, I think we've lost the distinction between the two. I mean, let's face it. We all have a natural tendency that whenever someone cries, we want to help them stop, right? We don't sit back and go, is that godly sorrow? <laughs> you know, it's like, what is that? You know, our natural tendency is, man, this guy's crying, you know, or this girl's crying, you know, let me, let me, let me, let me stop this pain. But you guys, the Bible explains there are two different types of tears, two different types of sorrow. And, and here's the thing is, is we're moved by tears and, and some people are professional criers. Man, they can just turn it on and off whenever. And, and, and it always moves someone. But, but here's the issue is that uh, we can't confuse crying for repentance. They're two different things. You can cry and not be repentant. You can be sorry that you got caught. You can be sorry about consequences, but not truly sorry to the point where you'll change. If the person goes, eh, you know, are you going to change? No, you know. And the Bible says that's, that's ungodly sorrow. That's worldly sorrow, and that leads to death. And here's the thing. Here's what I'm getting at is the worst thing you can do for a person like that is to comfort them. You're an accomplice to their death. You're helping them die. Suddenly the person goes, oh, okay, this person's making me feel better. Okay, I wept, I made up for my sin, and they feel justified because they cried, not because they repented. You guys, we've got to be careful with this. I don't ever want to comfort someone in worldly sorrow. The person that calls himself a believer says, I'm going to stay in this sin, keep going this direction. I'm not putting my arm around you because I'm just helping you and leading you toward death. There comes a point, there's a, there's a huge, huge difference between grace and tolerance. We're not to tolerate sin. You know, he, he tells the church in Ephesus, you know, the very same church of, of Timothy in, in Revelation chapter 2, he says, you know, one of the things that God loved about this church in Ephesus was they did not tolerate wickedness. They showed grace, but grace comes with repentance. Grace comes when you give, you know, someone goes the wrong direction and they decide to turn and you immediately embrace them and, and, and encourage them and love them. But it doesn't mean you, you, you sit and coddle the person that's going on the, the, destruction, the destructive ways. You tell them, no, you got to change because you're not helping them any. Uh, listen, I, I, I just got back from Mexico yesterday. Okay. I was gone for a few days, you know, teaching a group down there and and what if I came home last night to my wife that I'd been gone from for a while, and I come home to Lisa, and I come home in tears. I go, honey, there's this girl, Charo, you know, she came and, you know, coochie, coochie, and I, I just, ah, you know, and, I, you know, she's probably 50 years old now, but, but you know, still, you know, I just, ah, you know, and, and, and we started this relationship, and, and I, I'm, I'm going to keep this relationship with her, but I just came to tell you I'm sorry, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a good husband to you still, though, and we're gonna, yeah, I'm just going to keep the both of you. 
I don't expect you, no matter how hard I cry, don't picture Lisa putting her arm around me and going, it's okay, baby. I don't even picture being alive, you know? <laughs> I, I just, uh, but it's this whole idea of, look, I'm not going to encourage you and comfort you if you're going to keep going on in your sin. I mean, seriously, you have someone working for you. You, you know, you got an employee who comes to you crying saying, I stole $1,000 from you. You're going to give it back? No, and I'm going to keep stealing from you. <laughs> what are you going to do? Oh, that's okay. Let me give you a new office. You know, it just, it doesn't make any sense. You guys, and yet, as a church, that's what we do. You know, people are going down this road, going down the, the, these roads of destruction, and all we want to do is say, well, I still want to be their friend, and I'm going to keep being their friend. You guys, you're not being a friend. You're not being a friend by saying, you know what, I'll, I'll just... I'll just coddle you through this. There's never an excuse for a believer. There's never an excuse for sin. See, see, I want if that whole scene happened, I, not only would I want my wife to confront me, but I want you to. I wouldn't want you to go, oh, you can still be our pastor. You can still do this. You can still do that. No, what kind of friend is that? You're going to let me keep heading down this direction? That's not friendship. That's not love. That's you wanting to, to, to maintain this relationship with me and, and caring more about this relationship than you are about my relationship with God. A true friend is the one that's willing to stand up and say, no, this is the wrong thing and I can't support you in this. The Bible says true love doesn't rejoice with, with wickedness. It rejoices with the truth. And we've got to understand these things. In fact, God gives us specific instructions on how to deal with sin in the church. Okay, out of the very mouth of Jesus in Matthew 18. Okay, Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. And we've got to understand this as a church, you guys. This is one of the principles. This is one of the things we teach at membership class. So you understand this is what the church stands for. This is what we hold up. It's the words of Jesus. And Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 15, he says, if your brother sins against you, you go and show him his fault just between the two of you. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother over. Okay, it's very, very clear. Okay, if your brother sins, okay? You know, if, if, someone, if someone in this room sins, someone that I know of and I know something they've done, what's my responsibility? It says that I am the one that's supposed to go to that brother and point out his sin, or that sister, and point out the sin. And it says, just between the two of you. This is so important, such an important phrase. Otherwise, we're going to become this big gossipy church. Okay, when you see someone that's in sin, doing something that's going against what God wants, you're supposed to go alone, just between the two of you. And in private, you say, hey, I saw what you did. And I see this pattern in your life. Man, don't you believe that it's never to your advantage to disobey God? There's no way you can go down this road and expect to benefit from it. That's the way God set up this world. Let me turn and help you go back to the way God wants you to go. And I haven't told anyone. And the whole idea is, is if you go to him in private and, and, and it says, and, and your brother listens to you and actually turns, actually repents, godly sorrow, it says, you just won your brother. Okay, that's the end. The past can just end right there. You just won your brother. You just turned him from going to death, and now he's going to life. He's going toward salvation. He's going toward God, the things that are going to bring him life. You just did an awesome thing. 
You, you did the most loving thing you could have done for that person. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. The most unloving thing you could have done is let them walk away from God and continue in, in his or her sin. A, a, a terrible thing you could have done was, was not go one-on-one to that person. Instead, you start telling other people, hey, do you know what he did? Do you know what she did? And as Christians, we're a little more clever in how we mask our gossip. We go to our prayer groups and say, you really need to pray with someone. You, know, you need to pray for this brother, you know. And we start telling other people and just say, well, I'm just asking you to pray. I'm not gossiping. Or I'm just asking for advice on how to confront him. You know, that's gossip. Because the Bible's giving you clear instruction. You as yourself, you just go by yourself in private, confront this person. And if they turn, then no one else needs to know. It's a private issue. It's you, that person, and God, and that's it. But the Bible says in the next verse, verse 16, if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He says, okay, so if he doesn't listen to you alone, then that's when you begin to tell other people. But still, it's a spirit of love. You grab a couple of friends, you know, that, that know this person, and then the three of you sit down and go, man, buddy, what's going on here? Well, you, I mean, do you really think you're going to head this direction apart from God and it's going to work out for me? You can't do this. We've got a holy God. We need to revere him. We've got to live the way he wants. And maybe at that point, the, the guy or the girl is going to sit and go, wow, all three of you believe this and you see this in scripture and you're showing it, you're pointing it out to me and you guys will love me and help me through it. Yeah. Then maybe that will turn the person, that amount of love and embracing. But the Bible says then, if he, he still doesn't listen, if he refuses to listen to them, he says, then tell it to the church. Okay, so if he doesn't listen to those three people, he says, tell them to the church. And there's different interpretations of this because people say, well, what does it mean to tell the church? Should we have a list as, you know, the church at large? You know, every Christian in the world, because that's truly the church. Do we have a church, you know, for California, you know, tell everyone there? Or, or a church in Simi Valley because the church is bigger than Cornerstone. Do we tell everyone in the congregation, everyone that shows up on Sunday morning, is this the church in here? No, some of you aren't a part of the church. Some of you are visiting, some of you are just checking out, you don't even know if you believe in God. Am I supposed to just tell it to everyone that shows up? Well, the way we've looked at it, in, in, you know, as an elder board, you know, we, we, we see the church as that body of believers in which you fellowship. Those who you know that call themselves believers. And so someone, if someone has gone to that point, they still don't repent, then we start telling everyone that knows the person and say, hey, out of love, you got to help this guy. You got to help her. We got we to turn her away. She's going the wrong direction. And the Bible says if that doesn't even work, let's say you, you get everyone that knows it who's a believer and willing to stand for the truth, and you all confront this person, and they still don't, and he still doesn't listen, it says if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector which in that day, those were the outsiders. Those were the, the evil, the wicked ones. It says, you've got to treat that person. You've you got to take them out of the church. Some people say, well, that seems kind of harsh. Are you sure that's what Jesus is saying? That's what he, what he, what he said there. Um, and Paul makes it even more clear, I think, in 1 Corinthians 5. Um, 1 Corinthians 5, um, verse 9 in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul explains this whole idea of, of, of not associating with certain people. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, he says, 
I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Okay, is that confusing? Okay, pa Paul says, look, I'm not, when I said don't associate with immoral people, I'm not talking about everyone. He's, I'm just talking about those who call themselves Christians a so-called brother, but is living that type of lifestyle, refusing to repent. He goes, we're not supposed to associate with them. We're supposed to treat them like, like outsiders. It, 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 this is not at all talking about the people that I, if your life is totally screwed up and you don't believe in Jesus and you come here and, and you're in all sorts of stuff, you're killing people, whatever. You know what? I'm glad you're here. I mean, that's wonderful. You're here checking it out, trying to figure out what you believe. But the moment you say, you know what? I'm going to go in this water get baptized, and I'm going to call myself a Christian now. The moment you take on that name, the name, the sacred name of Jesus Christ, and dare call yourself a Christian, it's different. Now the Holy Spirit has come into you and enabled you, given you the power to change, and your life ought to be different, and you start moving in a different direction. Not that you're, going to, you're never going to sin again, not that you're not going to slip, but the whole idea is you turn and you're heading this direction and you're intent on heading this direction. You're not saying, I'm going to keep going in my sin and just call myself a Christian. We can't tolerate that. The church is supposed to be pure. I mean, and for those of you who are visiting, you know, you may go, wow, that's kind of harsh. But there's also probably a side of you that goes, you know what? That's exactly what the church needs. Because what's kept you from church so long is all the hypocrisy of people who say one thing and they, they do something else and the church refusing to stand up and say, look, we can't have this in the church. We haven't been set apart because we don't take God's word seriously. People will look at this passage and go, you know what? That's unloving. You guys, that's the most loving thing you can do. Do you understand that the, the, the hope is, is that this person is taken out of the church, and, and in fact, 1 Corinthians 5 says, you hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul can be saved in the day of judgment. The whole idea is, is you say, oh, you know what? If you're going to go that way, then just go that way. But you can't be a part of us. And the hope is that person goes in their sin and just goes, okay, well, I'll go a party. I'll do whatever I want to do. Do that. And at some point realizes, man, I miss what I had. I miss the peace I had with God. I remember when I had all my Christian friends around me and the fellowship and the unity. And, and life was just different then. I miss God. And the hope is you would look at everything you gave up God for and go, I gave up God for this? I'm going back. And then grace is the church going, man, the moment you turn, you got to understand, we're at your feet. We embrace you. We do anything. I don't care what you've done. The church is to embrace you and show grace and mercy and say, man, if you're repentant of what you did in the past, man, who am I to judge? We love you. 
but there's a big difference between grace and tolerance. We can't tolerate wickedness. That's the job of the church. We uphold what is true. We live it out. Now, still, some of you would say, I, I just don't like those passages. I don't like it either. To be honest with you, you think it's been easy over the years, every once in a while, to, to, to look at someone that I have loved for years, uh, some of my best friends, and have to say to them, look, you're going to call yourself a Christian and keep heading down this road. I can't even eat with you ever again until you turn. And to tell them, man, I care about you so much, and that's why I'm doing this. I got to obey what the Word of God says. I mean, I, I'm, I'm supposed to hold it up. And so this is it for us. I got to say goodbye. You think I wake up in the morning and go, man, how can I just tick someone off? No, it's, it's new, but that's what God's Word says. I'm bound by this. What else am I going to do? And I really believe it's the most loving thing I can do for that person. To say, you know what, I, I got I to gotta disassociate with you. Because it's what the Bible says. And, 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 you know, some of you guys go, gosh, that's harsh, that's harsh, that's harsh. And, and I read the passages too, and sometimes I think that. But you know what I do when I disagree with Scripture? I assume that I'm wrong. I assume not that God's too harsh, but maybe I'm too soft. Or, you know, other times when I go, no, God's too merciful. No, maybe I'm too harsh. Rather than saying, no, Jesus, your way isn't that great. I've got a better way. I go, you know what? I think I got a better way, but you're usually right, God. Um, and, I, and I go with his. And it's, not, it's uncomfortable, but that's where you prove the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. When you do those things that you disagree with. And you go, you know, I would have gone about it the other way, but God says this, so I'm going to hold that up. And I'm going to do that. And, and again, help, help, just, again, let me just make it so clear. We're, I'm not, I hope I don't sound unloving. I'm just saying I, I really think this is the greatest, most loving thing you can do because that's what God's Word says. It's the pattern that Jesus put there. And, and yet grace is when someone sins, you, you, you bend over backwards. Grace is, a, you know, a week ago, I was at a camp speaking, and a 16-year-old kid comes up to me at the end of one of my messages, and he says, he goes, Francis, I've never told anyone this. He says, I, uh, I was molested when I was six years old by my cousin, and, um, and we, we've maintained this type of relationship for the last 10 years. And he goes, are you saying that I can really walk away from this and, and start a whole new life? And I, I said, I said, buddy, I, I'm not the one that's saying this. What I shared tonight was were, were the words of God, that when if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, and that whole you can go away, and new things will come. I, I said, it's the whole picture of being born again. You're starting all over. It's it's new. And, and I said, and and it's the spirit, that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. The spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead now can dwell in you and you, you can change. You can walk away. And, and he says, well, but I've been going to church for years and I've never heard that. And I said, well, your church has issues, you know, 
Because the Word of God tells you that you can, you can't believe this. You got to stop looking at the past and think you're stuck there. You never have an excuse. Every time you sin, you have the ability to overcome it. The Bible promises that. So either I've got to call God a liar or you. Or the person who says, I'm stuck in the sin, I can't change, it's too bad, it's too awful. No, then you're calling my God a liar because he tells me he's never going to put you in a situation that's too hard for you to handle. But with every temptation, he's going to give you a way of escape so you can come out from under it. You never have to sin, so I'm not going to cry with you. I'm not going to put my arm around you because you're making a deliberate choice to sin against God. And you should have seen as I was talking more and more about this to this kid and about the hope in Jesus Christ, just the way his face lit up, because he says, I always thought that's what the Bible taught. I just hadn't heard it. And, and those are the people where, man, don't you dare look a, a person like that in the eye and say, you know what, what you've done is too awful, or you're really going to have to improve yourself, or you're going to have to make up for it, or this or that. That's sick. You know, you say, yeah, I was sinned, but man, I, I'll do anything. I'll bend over backwards to help you. I told this kid, I go, man, anytime you need to call, anytime you need to email, and, you know, and I'm going to pray for you like crazy when I get home, you know, because this is, this is awesome. That's grace. You know what grace is? Grace is as if Osama bin Laden walked in the door. And he says, I, I know what I've done. It's awful. And I want to bow to the feet of Jesus and live a new life. Grace is you walking up to him and hugging him. That's grace. You understand that? And that's what we stand for as a church. So no matter what you've done, what your past is like, the moment you, see, you, you weep and you turn and you say, I want life, I want to follow God now, and we'll do anything to help you. But we don't tolerate sin amongst believers. That's a whole different issue. Thank you for listening to the Crazy Love Podcast. Join us next time for a new episode, but until then, for more resources from Crazy Love Ministries or to support the work of Crazy Love, please visit our website at crazylove.org.